Hello, and welcome back to another mini-seminar of the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. These sessions present aspects of war that should be of interest to everyone who is serious about their responsibility to participate in the most critical decisions of our national experiment in democracy. Reflecting the current challenge civilization faces right now, this podcast will address the history and impact of biological warfare. In China, doctors noted the first infected person in mid-November. It was unusual as that type of disease had never been seen there before. At first, it spread slowly. In December, there were only 22 cases reported in the city, but that quickly changed to 21 deaths. Within a month, 15 times that number of people had died. Local Chinese health and government authorities knew that they had a serious outbreak on their hands. Unfortunately, the decision to quarantine was too late. The local population was already leaving, taking the infection along with them, first to neighboring provinces and then by train to other cities. Thousands died over the next few months. Although this may sound familiar, I'm not describing Wuhan, China, but the city of Guzhou, and this infection did not appear in November 2019, but November 1940. The disease was the Black Plague, and it was introduced through an airborne attack of the Japanese armed forces. The use of biologic agents in warfare is older than the science of biology. In the 6th century BC, the Assyrians used rye ergot to poison wells in hostile territory. From that time forward, various military forces used infection and disease for sabotage, such as poisoning wells or in unscientific attempts to spread illness among the enemy population. The interesting thing is that these isolated but recurring efforts had very little effect. Wells may have been poisoned or infected, but life went on. The enemy military force wasn't affected, and the local population was rarely infected. It was the loss of use of the well or wells that had any real effect. In several battles of the Middle Ages, diseased bodies were catapulted across the walls of, the, of a besieged town. Maybe the besiegers thought that they would spread the sickness already infecting their own troops. Maybe they just wanted to terrorize the inhabitants of the besieged city. It's hard to say after a millennium or more. We do know that in the most well-recorded of these events, the siege of Kaffa in Crimea by the Mongols in 1346, the plague did not spread and the city did not fall. This was probably due to the fact that the plague-carrying fleas abandon the host body as soon as it begins to cool and the plague already spreading through the Mongol host forced a quick end to the siege. Even centuries later, the deliberate use of disease as a weapon had doubtful results. In 1763, British officers deliberately gave the Delaware Indians smallpox-infected blankets during the siege of Fort Pitt. This attempt at biological warfare had no measurable effect. In this case, the smallpox actually came from the tribes of the Ohio to Fort Pitt and not the other way around. We also know that the Delaware Indians who received the blankets visited again in good health a month later, and all Ohio Indians known to be at the siege were still alive ten years later. During the American Civil War, a Confederate operating from Canada had clothing that had been soiled by yellow fever victims distributed in Washington, D.C. 
However, that's not the way yellow fever is spread, so nothing came of it. Real biological warfare capability depended upon the discovery of germ theory and microbiology in the late 19th century. The first serious use of biological agents in war came in World War I and from the most scientifically advanced country in the world at that time, Germany. The Germans cultivated anthrax and glanders, intending to infect the animal population of the Russian Empire. Armies at that time were dependent on animal transport and animals were essential for all aspects of agriculture and industry. The Germans also conducted sabotage attacks in the then-neutral United States, targeting animals working in munitions plants and those being shipped to the Allies. The effectiveness of these attacks was uncertain and, in the end, cannot be distinguished from normal outbreaks of those diseases at that time. After the war, the Geneva Protocol of 1925 specifically banned biological weapons alongside chemical weapons. Like most law of war developments through the end of World War II, military leaders had a great deal of influence over these agreements. After all, it was they who would have to implement and abide by these rules. Therefore, these rules had to make sense from a military perspective. The problems presented by both chemical warfare and biological agents with their lack of decisive impact in battle provided strong rationale for banning them. This move was supported by all European militaries. The Japanese military, however, drew a different conclusion. They reasoned that if Western leaders wanted to ban biological warfare, it must be because they feared it. In 1932, Japan began research and development of truly horrific proportions, including human experimentation in occupied Manchuria. There are some estimates that 10,000 people died during these experiments. During their border war with the Soviet Union in 1939, the Japanese tried to infect a river used by the Russian army as a water supply with typhoid. Although there is no evidence that the Soviet forces suffered any ill effects from this, the Japanese themselves suffered illnesses and deaths from the operation. This reveals a continuing problem with biological warfare, unintended harm to the forces and people of the party using bioweapons. The greatest success the Japanese had was in using biological weapons against the Chinese civilian population. Diseases included plague, as already mentioned, along with glanders, anthrax, and typhoid. The largest such operation was the Zhegan Campaign in May 1942. This was probably retaliation for the Doolittle Raid and intended to keep the Chinese coast unusable for U.S. military operations. The Chinese claimed the biological attacks sickened as many as one million civilians and killed tens of thousands. Once again, however, the Japanese also suffered from their own use of these weapons. 10,000 soldiers became casualties due to illness and 1,700 of their own soldiers died. The blowback may be the reason there were no more large-scale bioweapons attacks after 1942. These operations in China revealed another unintended effect of biological warfare, long-term recurring episodic events. Certain areas become pools of infection, causing new illnesses for years after the initial attack. The Chinese claim that some areas and people are still suffering from these induced diseases today. In the Western theater of war, all belligerent parties had biological weapons research and development programs. 
mostly to be used as retaliation should an opposing force use it first. The Russians, however, seem to have used such weapons as a form of biological sabotage in German-occupied areas of Ukraine and Poland. There is also evidence that Polish and Czech resistance forces used biological agents for sabotage and assassination. During the Cold War, advances in biology and technology increased the lethality and capability to spread bioweapons across large areas. However, for both the West and the Soviet Union, these seems to have been kept on as deterrents rather than as part of deliberate military planning. Nuclear weapons provided a more lethal, less expensive, and more predictable weapon. Additionally, biological warfare defensive technology and practices kept pace with offensive capability, limiting the potential military advantage of biological weapons. The United States unilaterally disavowed the use of biological weapons in 1971, relying on nuclear weapons to deter any such use of chemical or biological weapons by an opponent. Research in Russia and China continued, but there is no evidence of either country using them on the battlefield. Although states have been reluctant to use bioweapons in armed conflict, there have been instances of their use in terrorist attacks and even by organized crime. Aum Shinrikyo was a doomsday cult that perpetrated a sarin attack on the Tokyo subway in 1995, killing several people. Police raids discovered that members were trying although unsuccessfully, to develop effective bioweapons based on anthrax and Ebola. Arum Shinrikyo taught that by bringing about the end of the world, they would hasten the final salvation of the elect. That belief could make the risk of uncontrolled pandemic the goal, rather than an inhibition against the use of bioweapons. Al-Qaeda began a bioweapons program in the 1990s, Ironically, their interest began because of U.S. writings on the dangers of bioterrorism, so essentially, we gave them the idea. Fortunately, this effort seems to have been disrupted by the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. The anthrax attacks, which came shortly after 9-11, were really criminal rather than terroristic in nature. But it could be a model for future efforts by terrorist or criminal organizations. Federal investigators suggest that the presumed perpetrator conducted these attacks so the public would realize that they needed the anthrax vaccine he was working on. This may seem irrational, but it shows that motivations for biological attack can be unpredictable. These are just some of the examples from the last 25 years. With globalization and the proliferation of dual-use technologies, many of the scientific and technical capabilities required for bioweapons programs are either accessible or may soon be accessible to well-funded international terror or criminal organizations, or even to small groups and individuals. The examples of Kuzhou and Wuhan in China are more than 70 years apart, but each show what the effects of biological warfare could be. There is, however, another example to consider. Shortly after the attack on Kuzhou, the port city of Ningbo suffered a similar attack. Within two days of the first case of plague, hospitals mobilized to focus on treating the infected with ad hoc formation of multiple isolation wards and creating patient find and retrieval disinfection and burial teams. 
At the same time, public health teams imposed quarantines, disinfected homes, evacuated seriously affected neighborhoods, and initiated an aggressive public information campaign. The plague lasted for almost five weeks and killed 74 people, but it was contained. Two outbreaks of the same disease at nearly the same time using the same methods of contagion, but with early and timely intervention, much different results. Rapid identification, response, and mitigation can still play a critical role in limiting the effectiveness of any biological attack. The current pandemic and examples of Japanese use of biological agents in World War II show that biological warfare presents a credible threat. The delayed effect of biological agents, the difficulty to control the spread of disease, and the likely infection of one's own troops and people argue against its utility on the battlefield. Acts of sabotage directed against the economy of an enemy state are more likely, but the probability of payoff is low and the risk of uncontained spread and retaliation is high. For these reasons, the likelihood of biological weapons in state-on-state -state warfare is remote. The greatest risk is from non-state militant groups who feel that they have nothing to fear from becoming contaminated themselves, those who are, in fact, seeking to bring about end times. As we respond to this current pandemic and prepare for future natural events, we also need to be alert for such radicalized groups who may want to use biological weapons for terroristic or apocalyptic purposes. And on that happy note, I am well over time for this podcast. Please come back again for the next mini-seminar of the ancient art of modern war.